Welcome to the MD Advantage podcast. I'm Steve Adubato. MD Advantage is proud to now be a part of the MAG Mutual family. MD Advantage physicians and their practices will continue to receive exceptional protection and support, now backed by the strength and stability of MAG Mutual. We're honored to be joined by Dr. Asha Patel Shah, a board-certified dermatologist and member of the medical faculty at MAG Mutual Insurance Company. Dr. Shah, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. Doctor, tell us a little bit about your background and also your experience uh, more specifically as a dermatologist. Sure. Um, Thanks for this opportunity. And yes, of course, I'm happy to briefly introduce myself. So I graduated in a combined BSMD program at the University of Miami in Miami, Florida. And because of the combined aspect of that program, I had an opportunity to explore my research interests uh, in between my third and fourth year of medical school. And so I spent some time at the University of Miami as a research fellow. And then I went on to the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, as a clinical research fellow in the dermatology branch, which was in the National Cancer Institutes at that time. Uh, Subsequently, I went on to match and then graduate from Columbia University's dermatology residency program as chief resident, and then moved from New York City to Atlanta, Georgia for practice, which is where I currently still am today. I am a board-certified dermatologist by the American Board of Dermatology, and I currently am an adjunct assistant professor of dermatology at Emory University in the Department of Dermatology. And my clinical experiences in the last decade now of practice span a health maintenance organization, private practice, locum tenens in underserved areas, academic practice, and telehealth in the commercial and government sectors. Really helpful for us to understand uh, your very extensive background. Talk a little bit about your role as a member of the medical faculty at MagNutual. Yeah, so my role is primarily helping with claims and specifically dermatology claims and producing educational content for the Learning Center. So so let's talk about some of these claims, particularly in the area of off-label medication. What exactly are we talking about Um, What are we referring to when we talk about the risks and considerations, what we need to know about off-label use of medication, meaning right off the bat, what are we, what's off-label? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's first important to define what FDA approved means as the definition of off-label use generally comes from a FDA approved drug for an unapproved use. So for a drug to be FDA approved, the pharmaceutical company must submit pharmacology, clinical, and safety data, just just to name a few topics, for the FDA to review. The company must show that that drug is safe and effective for its intended use. However, you know, safe does not mean that the drug has no side effects. So instead, it means that the FDA has determined the benefits outweigh the potential risks of using the drug for a specific disease indication. And ultimately, the approved drug labeling is very specific to the dosage of treatment and then the disease or diseases the drug is meant to treat. Um, So from the FDA regulatory point of view, a physician may prescribe the drug for an unapproved use when they deem it's medically appropriate for their specific patient. And that is what we call off-label use. So, you know, examples of off-label use would be one, if there's no approved drugs to treat the disease or medical, you know, condition. Two, all approved treatments have been tried without seeing any benefit to the patient. 
or three, there are medical contraindications to the approved treatments out there. And the off-label usage of another medication would be the best option for the patient, you know, in, in your medical decision-making. And, you know, other examples of off-label use also include things like if you alter the dose on the labeling, like if you're using an adult med for a pediatric case or using a different vehicle to deliver the medication, which we often do in dermatology, which is like compounding a topical cream from the contents of an oral capsule. So I'm curious about this, and I know that everyone listening to this podcast uh, uh, would be curious as well. Cite the most specific, if you will, uh, factors that a healthcare provider should consider when evaluating um, the potential risk associated with off-label prescriptions. What specifically are those factors? Yeah, great question. So most importantly, off the bat, safety. Safety is the biggest factor. You know, clinical trial safety data is derived from disease-specific indications. And if you'd like to prescribe off-label, you must ensure that the benefits would outweigh the risks in your patient. So each clinical scenario is really unique to that specific encounter. And really bringing the patient into this discussion and presenting them with all the options and insight into your medical decision process really helps make the physician-patient relationship into more of a true partnership and will hopefully actually increase the compliance on the patient's part. You know, another factor that keeps also coming up these days is cost. And many, if not all, health insurance companies really heavily regulate and abide by, you know, their formularies with what is FDA approved only. So, you know, what I'm also even finding out now is that for FDA approved indications, there's still an arduous prior authorization in place for many standard medications. So trying to get a payer to cover an off-label use medication can be a near impossible challenge. And thus, these open communications with the patients on the front end, and frankly, just getting the patient to be their own advocate may help move the process along. Um, and if all else fails, there are out-of-pocket or cash payment options for medications, but that tends to be incredibly expensive and generally a non-starter for most patients. This is Steve Adubato, the MV Advantage podcast with our um, colleagues and friends at MAG Mutual. We're joined by Dr. Shah, who is a board-certified dermatologist and uh, medical faculty member, serves on the medical faculty at MAG Mutual Insurance Company. Dr. Shah, I want to follow up on this question. So you mentioned at MAG Mutual, you deal with medical liability claims. Be specific. The most common and relevant claims you've seen include? It's mostly you know unexpected outcomes, and it can stem from things like off-label use. So you know, in terms of maybe examples, um, you know, there has been quite a few, but one that comes to mind that was quite devastating to the patient involved a board-certified dermatologist and hyaluronic acid gel injections. And the injections were done um, to a combination of on-label sites, such as the nasolabial folds, but an also, uh, you know, an off-label site was done at the same time, which was the glabella, which is, you know, the area between the brows. And unfortunately, the next day, there was pain and redness at the glabella site, and the patient was diagnosed with a vascular occlusion, which is a medical emergency. And subsequently, the patient was put on an appropriate treatment regimen of hyaluronidase, vasodilators, and antibiotics, but eventually 
the patient unfortunately required seven hyperbaric oxygen treatments to help with all the skin necrosis. Um, so ultimately, when this case was reviewed and you know many other cases like this, it's deemed that the consent was not thorough enough for the patient to make an informed decision to treat the off-label site. You know, it's interesting. You just mentioned informed consent. How does the informed consent process differ um, with off-label medications? Yeah, so I can only really speak to dermatology-specific cases, and frankly, this is almost a daily occurrence within our field. Um, you know, if you think about how resource-intensive a quality clinical trial can be, it's not feasible for the pharmaceutical companies to do this for every single dermatologic indication, especially if it's for an established medication that has been around for decades, even preceding the existence of these FDA regulations. Thus, dermatologists have become very comfortable uh, treating off-label and, and because there's just simply no choices for some of the diseases we treat. Luckily, you know, there has been a big boom in the last five years for diseases like atopic dermatitis, alopecia areata, and vitiligo, but some of these newer medications are still out of financial reach for most patients, so off-label prescribing is still very much thriving in dermatology. And, you know, the informed consent process is nearly always verbal with the patient. And, gener and generally, you know, we review the rationale of the decision. So one, I'll discuss what the drug is actually approved for. You know, then I'll get into counseling if there are any other drugs or therapies that are approved for the disease. But then I have to explain why, you know, the rationale behind why those options won't work for this current situation. And so then I then go into reviewing any sort of evidence I might have to support the off-label use I'm presenting to them, like things like smaller anecdotal case reports, experience from colleagues presented at a you know medical meeting, things I can show or print to them. Um, and then I'll discuss if the off-label use is expected to reach a similar treatment outcome compared to those that are approved so I can level their expectations especially because nowadays they're bombarded with advertisements, social media, and, you know, they may expect different outcomes. Um, and, you know, as part of a traditional informed consent, I, of course, also review expected side effects, contraindications, any drug-drug interactions currently, or, you know, anything that might be expected down the road. And then I'll counsel regarding required lab monitoring and follow-up visit intervals so, so that I prefer to keep the patient safely on the medication. It's very important that we're on the same page. Um, and finally, I'll go briefly into the cost portion of the medication. Of course, I'm not on the pharmacy side. I have no idea what's going to happen on that side, but I just want to warn the patient if there might be a prior authorization or a cash pay option, um, you know, so there's less frustration once they leave my office. So, you know, as you can tell, this is a super lengthy conversation. It just needs to be documented in the plan portion of the note, not only to cover myself, but to also document that the patient was an equal partner in all of this and that they understood the decision making and that they had full awareness of their responsibilities. Um, you know, lastly, I wanted to mention that I've actually heard of a few fellow dermatologists creating written contracts for patients to sign which is essentially like a written informed consent for certain off-label use medications. Um, you know, I've not actually had to do that um, kind of consent in my years of practice, but I imagine for certain scenarios and certain types of patients, it would actually be a really great document to have handy for medical legal peace of mind.
Final question on my end, uh, Dr. Shah, what advice do you have for physicians, uh, some of whom are calling in new scripts over the phone versus putting in a prescription in writing? Your thoughts? Yeah, so <laughs> in my humble opinion, calling in a new prescription is not ideal and pharmacy staff nationwide is pushing back on this practice. So if you think about this logically and even logistically, there are so many audio technical issues that can happen with leaving a new prescription on a pharmacy's voicemail, which is generally what we're forced to do because the pharmacies are short staffed and can't take your call in real time. Um, in addition, calling in a new prescription this way may, may not be properly documented in the written record. And thus that just leaves more error you know, to grow you know, if a medication must be called in, it's best to actually get a live pharmacy staff person on the phone, verbally relay the information back and forth, make sure both parties have like understood the details correctly. And then the next step would be for that person who called in the prescription to, to document this as a, as a pharmacy call in, like a telephone encounter in the chart. And then on top of that, they have to add the new medication to the person's or the patient's active medication list. So as you can already tell, this is like way too many steps in this process. And of course, the more steps you add in any workflow, the more room for error. So ideally, you know, we live in the electronic age and nearly everything has an electronic trail. It's just optimal to use your electronic health record to e-prescribe. So documentation is present in real time. And then the patient's medication list is also auto-populated. And, you know, if you're still paper charting, of course, that's okay, but copies of paper prescriptions, you know, copies of the telephone notes of pharmacy calls would be really important for appropriate record keeping. And, you know, the reason this is just very important is because there's just a lot of claims right now with wrong dosages, wrong drug names, wrong amount dispensed due to miscommunication between the office and the pharmacy. So just getting into a better documentation practice, workflow rhythm between you and your staff is really important to protect yourself. Dr. Shah, I cannot thank you enough for providing such important, valuable information on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. On behalf of the teams at MD Advantage and MagMutual, this has been Steve Adubato. You've been listening to Dr. Shah talk about a whole range of important issues. We thank you so much for listening. Check us out next time.